The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Say good morning again. Good morning. Um, I think it's one of the interesting um, challenges of our meditation practice is that the request is to find a place of rest, to find a place of peace, to find a kind of harmony, um, not by shutting things out, not by shutting out the world, not by stopping things, not by stuffing our ears with cotton and putting on a, you know, like some of us do on the airplane, you know, you get the eye mask and then the noise canceling headphones and then the <laughs> maybe you pull your hat down and blanket up and and um, I'm one of those people <laughs> see me on the airplane doesn't look like someone you want to talk to <laughs> um, and that's one strategy you know to find peace it's like to cut off the inflow cut off the stimulation, you know, take a sleeping pill, drink a few glasses of wine, you know, whatever we do to sort of relax the mind, relax the body. Um, and maybe there's a place for that, you know, in, in the flow of our life, there can be some skillful ways of simplifying experience. Um, at times, um, but it, but I think it's helpful to remember that in meditation practice, our refuge is not in escaping from life. It's not in escaping from experience. It's not in escaping from thoughts, but it's actually um, to meet our experience exactly the way it is. You know, and and this is called taking refuge in Dharma. You know, Dharma is how things are, the way things are. So, and usually, there's some aspect of the way things are that we don't like. <laughs> you know, if there was no gap, no daylight between how things are, moment to moment and how we want them to be, you know, maybe, maybe we would be Buddhas. Maybe that's the way a Buddha, fully enlightened Buddha, ex- is experiencing things. There's no gap. There's no, you know, just the flow of Dharma is who we are. And of course, the flow of Dharma is who we are. And yet, um, we look for things to be different. We, 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 uh, of course, you know, we have our preferences. We have our ways of resisting and looking away and trying to control and fix. Um, and there's a place for that, you know, of course. Um, but the request of practice and you know when we when we take some time whether it's five minutes ten minutes you know coming to IMC and sitting for 30 or 40 minutes the request is to um, again and again ret- simply return to how things are to our experience of how things are what it, how is this mind right now whether there's a lot of thinking or whether it's pretty calm and pretty spacious. How is the emotional tone of experience? Is there agitation? Is there joy? Is there delight? Is there calm? Is there sadness? Is there irritation or boredom? Or, you know, so for the purpose of meditation, it doesn't really matter what's happening because it's all Dharma. It's all the changing flow of experience. And if we can trust anything, we can trust that 
whatever I'm feeling right now, if I just wait, <laughs> you know, it's going to change. It's going to change into something else. So if it's unpleasant, if I just wait, if I just hang out with it, it's going to change into, you know, something that's maybe pleasant or neutral. If there's some really um, peaceful, pleasant, relaxed feeling in the body and mind, um, not to get too attached to that because we know too that that will change. That will change, (laughs) you know, into something else. So the actual change and the changing nature of experience is dharma. You know, it's not like there's some specific state, some specific um, correct experience to have, (laughs) you know, a correct experience that's unchanging over time. It's rather to get so close and get so familiar with this changing nature of experience that we begin to let go. We begin to stop trying to fix it in some way, you know, and get more comfortable with the fact that it will change. If you've been meditating um, a little while, you know, I always think that one of the one of the first big insights in a meditation practice is ju- is just simply realizing that sometimes it's going to be like this, and sometimes it's going to be like that. You know, sometimes a sitting will be uh, so sweet, so simple, so calm, um, so enjoyable, um, and then sometimes it will be. Um, agitated and difficult and will feel restless. And, um, and so the insight is not so much that um, we finally get to a place where every sitting is going to be the way we want it, you know, relaxed and joyful and peaceful. But it's that we're, we begin to be not so bothered by however it is. You know, sometimes it's like this, sometimes it's like that. And our well-being starts to become uh, a little bit independent, a little bit disentangled from the content of experience. So if I'm only happy, if I'm only, um, you know, feel uh, well-being when experience is a certain way, then that's a very brittle kind of piece. It's a very brittle kind of, it depends on, you know, so many things that are outside of our control. Um, Whereas if there's some way that I've learned to harmonize with the flow of things, to rest in the simple knowing, rather than being so invested in the content of experience, then it's like, However the moment happens to be, it's okay, you know. Um, you know, there's this wisdom operating that sometimes it will be uh, difficult. Sometimes it will be easy. Sometimes the energy will feel very settled and collected. And sometimes we'll feel scattered and diffuse and agitated and, you know, and this knowing that it's all dharma, it's all um, okay because it's happening, you know. Um, so this this request or this challenge for ourselves to what is it like to rest to allow our system to rest, to allow the mind to rest, to allow the body to rest in the middle of impermanence, in the middle of our changing experience. Um, Sometimes the word impermanence can feel a little bit abstract. And recently I've been practicing with 
one flavor of impermanence which may be best captured with the word uncertainty. You know, it's one thing to say everything is um, impermanent. And it's another thing to say things are uncertain. You know, um, and it's, I feel like it gives me a little more of a, of the f- emotional resonance of impermanence to say our life unfolds um, in, a, in a sort of field or in a, um, a state of uncertainty. Um, Ajahn Chah, who is the great Thai forest master um, in our tradition, you know, and one of the great uh, forest masters. And he had a very earthy, down-to-earth way of teaching. And so he said something like, if you look for certainty, if you look for certainty in what is uncertain, um, you will suffer. If you look for certainty in what is uncertain, you will suffer. And you know, in, in his in his very down to earth way, he said, "This is not smart. <laughs> not smart <laughs> to lo- to constantly be 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 seeking certainty in what's uncertain. Um, we suffer, and and yet." Um, maybe this is the most natural human thing to do is to, you know, we, we yearn for certainty. I think we yearn to have some degree of predictability and control. And not only do we yearn for it, but it's, it's quite important for, for, I think, for a healthy psychological life to to feel that there's a way that life is manageable and predictable and controllable you know when i think about children one of the conditions that allows children to to grow and develop and flourish is to have routine right you know so every day the teacher welcomes the children in the same way like in my daughter's just started the first grade in her first grade class. The first week was all about teaching the children how to begin the day and how to set up their routine. First they go into, first they hang up their bag on the hook outside the classroom. Then they open up their bag, they take out their lunch and they bring it in and they put their lunch in their cuppy and then they go outside and they all line up and the teacher waits at the door and they shake the teacher's hand when they go into the classroom. But when they shake the teacher's hand, it's not just like, uh, uh, they look at the teacher and the teacher looks at, at each child and says, good morning, says their name and says, good morning. And then they say, good morning. And then they go in and then they take off their outside shoes and they put on their inside shoes, you know. So they have this routine that they do every morning. And um, I think there's a way that routine, that ritual creates a container. It creates a kind of steadiness and safety where we can begin to open to what's new. We can begin to open to to the truth of change and uncertainty and um, because we're coming, we're meeting it from a place of safety, from a place of stability. And this is maybe not so different from, you know, the forms of practice. Like, you know, we come here, it's like, you know, it's not like one day you come here and there's, dance music going and we're, you know, we're, okay, today we're going to be doing, you know, our ecstatic dance and, um, and then the next day you come and well, it's locked and no one's here, even though there's a scheduled talk because, you know, just decided not to do it today. And, 
you know, we, it's this kind of predictability. You come in, it's the same way. You get your cushion, this, you know, the, someone will be here to ring the bell. Um, and when we have some stability, it turns out that that steadiness, that stability supports our capacity to meet uncertainty and meet what is changing. Um, The posture of meditation, the fact that we invite a kind of physical steadiness and a physical stillness and a stability, we're grounded, you know, whether we're, we're on the floor, we always encourage this sort of kind of triangle, this, this, you know, or some kind of stability. We might be um, sitting seiza, you know, on our, on our knees, on a bench or on the cushion, or, but we're, we're grounded, you know, on the chair, our feet are, 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 are grounded. And we, there's some way that the physical posture becomes a container to hold experience. And we've, it, it's this living container though, it's always changing. So we can notice that, oh, the belly has become tight. You know, is there a way that I can soften the belly and sort of relax this container and invite more of the Dharma in? I remember early in my practice when I would sit um, what are called in Zen seshin, which are like a kind of five-day retreat or seven-day retreat. And at the end of that, my shoulders would be so uh, aching and just really tight, really aching. And I, be- I began to wonder, like, why? I can understand the knees hurting or something or the back, but why is, are my shoulders hurting? I mean, they're not really, they don't need to do much. And then I when I looked closely, I realized that there was this way that in my intention to be upright and to be um, sort of balanced and, and awake in the body, I was unconsciously tightening the shoulders. So I was kind of sitting like this, you know. And, and in seeing that, I had this flash of realization that this was a way of sort of shielding myself (laughs) from something, you know, kind of like this, you know, and just sitting period after sitting period, day after day, when you sit like that, it's going to hurt, you know, it's a kind of extra tension. So it it became my practice to every time there was some extra contraction, I would just allow it to release as much as it could. And then sometimes, you know, as soon as I turn the attention away from it, it would tighten again and then come back and release it. And it's just over and over again, working with this unconscious habit of tension. Um, And so, so the the posture can become uh, a container and the steadiness of the posture. And then as we say in, in a mindfulness practice, in the insight practice, the more still and stable the mind, the mind is, the more we're able to perceive change. You know, when the mind is, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, when, if the mind is agitated, thinking about something, moving a lot, then things seem very fixed, very solid. Oh, it's this way, it's always gonna be this way. You know, this kind of, there's this solidness, this tightness to experience. So the more the mind moves, the more things seem fixed. My problems seem unchanging. Um, nothing seems really workable. And, 
Um, but the more quiet and the more still the mind is, the more we can see the particulars of change, the more we can see the flow of things. You know, we're not, we're not concretizing them. We're not solidifying something that's actually changing. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons that in meditation it's encouraged to develop some steadiness with the sensations of the breath, the breathing. You know, not because being mindful of the breath is any more true, any more real, any more dharma than anything else that we could be experiencing. But it turns out that this rhythm of the breath, you know, like this pendulum, is a very helpful place for training the mind to be more still. It's like if we just have the intention to like focus on a spot or like a dot on the wall or something that's not changing, it turns out that it's hard to keep our attention on that. But the breath has just the right amount of change that if we open to it and relax with the breath, um, it begins to sort of steady the mind. And as the mind steadies, we begin to be able to perceive change. Um, we begin to be able to relax with uncertainty. You know, in meditation, we're open. You know, we don't know what's going to happen next. You know, it's not like watching a movie that you've already seen before or reading a book that you've already read before where you kind of know what's going to happen. Um, meditation is a little bit more like facing the blank piece of paper, you know, before we write something. Um, and that can be intimidating. You know, it's like, it's empty. So the good part about that is it's totally open. You know, it's not fixed. But there can be this sort of um, almost like freeze response, you know. Maybe that's what writer's block is, I don't know. But you have the blank page and it's so open and it's so sort of unformed that, you know, it's like, where do I start? And how should I start? And because there's infinite possibilities, it's like you can't pick one. Um, <laughs> some years ago, I did a, I took a, participated in a writing class in Berkeley, which was this lovely I think it was in an art gallery, which was on 4th, if you know where 4th Street is in Berkeley, upstairs in this art gallery. And we sat in a circle and it was in the method of something called, uh, I think the, the, the original book was called Writing Down the Bones. If, you, if anyone remembers that book by Natalie... It's Natalie Goldberg, who's a longtime Zen practitioner and teacher. But it's this method of, um, and I'm sure there are other similar methods, of literally putting your pen or pencil on the page and just starting to write. <laughs> you know, so you don't edit your writing. You don't edit yourself. And she would give a phrase which would, which would sort of get us going. And I, I just remember one phrase was something like, there is not one moon, but two, or something like that. <laughs> and then we, we wrote down that phrase and then kept going and just kept writing. And I, I heard this and I thought, you know, what, what is, what's, how is this going to, oh, and, and then the request was to read what we've written 
to everybody. <laughs> and I don't remember if you could pass or not, but there was sort of, you sort of had to. So we, and she would, you know, it would just be five minutes or seven minutes or something. And she'd ring a bell and we'd stop writing. And over and over we would do this. And what amazed me was what would tumble out of each person. What would tumble out of me was totally unplanned, unexpected, you know. And at first it was halting and it was, it was very challenging because I think of this habit of editing myself, censoring myself. And when I got comfortable with this idea that um, something would, would turn up on the page and it wasn't a sort of max planning it out, figuring it out. It was just, it would just, something would, something would appear on the page. And um, there began to be more trust, you know, this sense of trust that um, this unedited version of experience had a value to it, that there was something alive to it. And it wasn't, it, it, it was, it was um, often much more original and spontaneous and insightful than anything I could plan out, you know, um, because I think it was really tapping into the flow of, of, of Dharma, the flow of truth, the flow of change. So it's like when we sit, when we, when we meditate, can the, you know, the request may be to allow this unedited version of ourselves, this uncensored, unedited um, flow of experience to simply uh, present itself on the page, to simply, um, it's like we're experiencing the first draft of our life. And, and we get to see how um, unexpected that can be, how messy that can be, how disjointed, but also how fresh it can be, how alive it is. Rather than trying to figure it out and plan it out, we're just simply opening. We're just simply trusting that something will appear on the page of experience. And then maybe it's one more leap, but to, you know, to trust that something will happen. And then the next leap of faith is that whatever happens to arise, that there's value to that. There's value to being with that. There's some reason in the, in the, in the logic of the universe, in the, the, f- the matrix of conditions of cause and effect, there's some reason that this thought is arising now, this feeling, this memory, this fear, this hope, um, this sound, this sensation, that um, it's almost like we can tell ourselves, yep, you know, right on time. That, <laughs> you know, that image, that memory of someone in my life or that uh, wondering about what, you know, what am I going to have for lunch or what, you know, what's going to happen this next year or this, you know, whatever it is. Yes, this is what is happening. And there is tremendous value to being with it, to, to welcoming experience, however it happens to be, not turning away from it, um, and, and allowing it to reveal itself to us, to teach us what it, what it, what it has to teach. I, it was very interesting to look over my notebook of these writing exercises and to see it's like a, 
a report from the unconscious mind, in a way, the subconscious mind. Um, sometimes, if, you, if you've ever done uh, dream journaling, this is another very interesting practice of simply keeping a pen and paper next to the bed, and before one goes to sleep, you just have the intention to remember any dream, any dream activity. And then in the morning, just writing down whatever you remember. And I remember when I first did this, I would just write, it might be just a word or a sentence or something, because that access, the remembering the dreams, was, was there wasn't so much um, practice in doing that. But over the months that I was taking a class on dreams, I could fill up pages and pages of what I would remember. This is interesting, you know. Um, so over time, as we open these channels and begin to trust that the uncertainty of experience um, is, well, yes, it may bring up fear. Yes, it may bring up feelings of vulnerability and feelings of wanting to c- assert control or wanting to come to a place where we're not subject to uncertainty. Um, with practice, we can begin to relax into the truth of uncertainty, the truth of change. And then those channels begin to open and we begin to experience more and more of how things are and how this, this mind, this heart, this body is. And um, we can trust that whatever happens in the meditation is... Um, it may not be pleasant, it may not be exactly what we want to happen, but that there's value in meeting it with awareness. There's, there's value in being awake to our experience, however it shows up, however this moment happens to be. And... Um, And this trust is, is a wonderful quality to cultivate, that we're learning that we don't have to control. We don't have to um, sort of desperately seek certainty in what is actually not certain. And, and, and this opens us up to um, maybe a much more rich and satisfying experience of ourselves and of others um, because we, we're more adaptable, we're softer, we're, the mind and the heart is more flexible. And then we can meet others as they are, you know, without knowing how they should be. And we can meet ourselves as we are without, you know, knowing, fixing. Um, and a tremendous, tremendous sense of well-being can arise from that. A tremendous sense of love and uh, compassion for the ways that we create suffering for ourselves in, in seeking control and seeking certainty. And if we know that, we know how we can free ourselves from that suffering. We know that it's possible to um, take refuge in Dharma, to return again and again to how things are. Um, One of my teachers has this great way of sort of encapsulating this as something like does he say? He says, we come to practice because of our difficulty with how things are, right? You know, we want things to be somehow different. 
than how they are. And um, so the problem is how things are. <laughs> but it turns out the solution is also how things are. <laughs> and to learn to be with how things are um, in a way that is open and soft and flexible. And, um, and then it's, it's sort of like, it's not that our problems disappear from our life, but they sort of disappear into our life, you know. It's like um, we, we, of course we, we, we have preferences and we uh, have likes and dislikes. But as I was saying earlier, it's like those become less and less of a problem, you know. Sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like this. And we begin to relax and um, welcome however it happens to be right now, because that is what's true. That is what Dharma is. And, um, and, and begin to enjoy the freedom that, that comes from this willingness to be present with change and be present with uncertainty. So maybe that's enough for me. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for listening and your presence here. And I, we have time. So if anyone has comments, questions, um, how does this topic resonate with you? Uh, I hope I don't sound like I'm being contrarian. Uh, I hope I don't sound like I'm being a contrarian, but I would like to note there are a few books and movies that when you see them a second time, you do notice more things that you <laughs> hadn't, hadn't <laughs> noticed the first time. It's often the mark of a particularly good book or movie. So uh, there's some... <laughs> Something we said there. It is great. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, and it's a great it's a great point because it's like we can think that we're present. We can think that we're giving something our full attention. And when we, for example, a movie or something, a book, we see it again. It's like, wow! I never noticed that. I never. It was there. It was always there. It was there in the first time we saw it. But we see more and more and more. And there's a way that like the breath, for example, can be like that. We can feel like we're present with the sensations of breathing. And we, we, we may be. But we're on one level of being present. And we're noticing it on one level. And then we can as the mind settles, as, as awareness becomes more seamless, as there's more and more moments of being with the breath without being distracted and taken off, and we see more, we notice more, we notice more detail. And um, just one story, you know, about movies, there's one film that my wife and I like a lot and which we've, we've seen with our family and stuff, we probably, I don't know how many, embarrassed to say how many times we've seen it because it's a great kids movie and so it's a Japanese movie and but every time th- there's a scene and, and, we, and the scene is that the the family it's set in the late 50s and the family is getting a refrigerator for the first time and then it cuts away to the ice man who you know delivers ice in kind of like a back street and looking kind of depressed. And I, I always make the same comment, which my wife's probably like, oh, the Iceman is sad because, because, <laughs> you know, he's not needed because I get it. But it's like every time I see it, it's fresh to me. And every time they cut away to the Iceman, I have the same thought, oh, he's sad because, <laughs> anyway. Um, so as we do, we begin to, um, yeah, we see more and more. And um, so, yeah, anyway, thank you, John. <laughs>
Ready? Hi, thank you. I'm sorry I came in a little late, so I don't know if this is on topic. But I know that um, in my practice lately, I've been um, the the question of whether it's letting go and softening around the experience and being with what how things really are. The difference between that and kind of not like burying your head in the sand, like trying to discern when I'm doing the softening and letting go and being with the experience as it is versus when am I shirking or, or you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm maybe, I don't know, doing too much. Does that making sense at all? Are you res- Does that resonate yeah, as, a, yeah. as a line to? Yeah. 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 So, um, I think sometimes we can hear this teaching about letting go and softening and have the idea that it's, we don't do anything. We don't act or we have to accept things that aren't, you know, aren't good, aren't, you know. Um, I mean, the way, I mean, one way of thinking about it is that, um, we accept what's happening. To, to accept what's happening doesn't mean we approve of it or condone it. Or it it's literally means to acknowledge this is happening now. You know, so it's like it's like accepting the truth of something. You know, and. You know that's basic. That's mindfulness practice. That's being aware. That's that's you know. So it's. I would say that is like the opposite of sticking our head in the sand, because it's like okay, this is happening. This feeling is present. This feeling of um, impatience, or this feeling of sadness, or you know whatever. This, um, you know, uh, something is happening, life event is happening. So we can accept that it's happening and be aware that it's happening. And then when we, when we have met it and, 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 you know, with awareness, um, that is a very good basis for then deciding how to, how, what to do, you know, and it will really depend on the situation. So it might be, um, for example, in meditation, it might be if a thought arises and I'm sitting and with the breath and a thought arises, oh, I wonder what I'll have for lunch and blah, blah, blah. And I notice that I'm a little distracted by that. So the noticing of it is the accepting. Okay, thinking is happening now. And then I have a choice. Maybe it's skillful in this moment. It's not such an important thought maybe and it's, I'm, it's not such a charge to it. I can let it go and just have the intention to return to the breath. Or maybe it's a thought that, oh my God, I left the, the, ga- the stove on, <laughs> you know, or something. Okay, that's a thought, you know, if, it's, if, it's, you know, if it feels like this is really an emergency or I smell smoke in the, in the building, that's not, don't just let it go and go back to the breath. <laughs> Do something, <laughs> please, if you smell smoke here. You know, so in the same way in our life, we have to first start from a, a foundation of awareness. This is what's happening. This person is doing, is acting in a way, you know, for example, that is not, um, you know, the way uh, that's not, that it, that's, you know, that's dangerous for maybe to themselves or to others or something. And then from that acceptance of this is how things are, we we use our, our as much wisdom as we can to to determine what to do, how to act. Is there a conversation that needs to happen? Is there may, maybe you know sometimes it's like okay, I'm aware of something that I think is dangerous or unskillful, but I'm also aware that I'm very 
triggered by it. I'm very emotional around it. So, you know, maybe what's wise and skillful is to wait, is to wait until I'm calmer and I've had more time to sit with something and process it and metabolize it and then have that conversation, you know, when I'm in a better space. Um, so the language of acceptance is a little, is a little tricky, but it's really about um, this willingness to be with how things are. And then, and then that becomes, then we have choice. Then, you know, and the more mindfulness there is, the more choice we have. So when there's no mindfulness, it's like we just react. We just, you know, scream at someone or do something. And, but when there's mindfulness there, we become, we're aware, okay, there's more choice here. I can, I can pause. I can um, breathe with this. I can uh, wait, maybe. Um, so, you know, that's... that's Thank you. That's that's really helpful. Um, I know because a lot of the time, what have that comes up for me is in the in the moment to be present with the let's say fear or anxiety that's happening is so much more pleasant in a lot of ways than the reactive way that I used to I usually do it. That I feel like it's kind of I'm cheating or something that. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's all this space here. I don't have to do this this way. And I'm like, is this okay that it's that it's letting go of it? It's just such a relief that I, maybe I'm doing something wrong because right. it feels so <laughs> much better. But I don't know. I like what you said about then then seeing that it's that you because you're so triggered and so on that. Or th- that maybe taking that break is better for the whole situation as well, because you may not be the one to be in it and involved in the way that you are without some settling of your letting it drain. And for for now, and that that the wisdom or so on can arise if you you're aware that that's the the ha- habit, and then let it try to chart a new new course uh, that that yeah thank yeah. you Max. yeah yeah thank you thank you nice Did you? thank you that was uh definitely feel like you're bodhisattva and arahant are one in you um and uh there are a lot of great great points you made in that talk um i like that you there's like a sentience to different elements of experience that you kind of drew out use the excuse me the word aliveness but i really like that it's like like there's there's more than there's a lot going on underneath the surface and I like the way you talked about the unconscious mind as well. Bless you. Um, I guess the other thing, too, that I've been thinking about lately is just, like, how to hold um, the hindrances and um, the poisons and whatnot. Like, they talk about them all the time. And it's it's easy to have sort of a, a judgmental um, relationship to them or feel like it's bad, but... I really like how you said, like, it's all Dharma, or like Chogyang Trungpa said, it's just one taste. There's ultimately just one flavor to experience. Mm. So that just reminds me, like, even though, like, ultimately it can make sense to have, like, a negative association with the hindrance because of, like, the feeling tone associated with it, or it's maybe not conducive to liberation, that's part of the process is ultimately getting past like the negative association or the judgment and being able to bring that, um, that awareness. And I like how you talked about that. It's like that awareness, it's another orientation to acceptance. It's letting, opening the wine bottle, letting it breathe. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you decide if you want to drink it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) if you 
Yeah, as yeah. opposed to bringing like the the sort of discursive mind into the equation. So I definitely, I think, yeah. yeah thank, thank you, Ethan. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's a great, it is, it's a tremendous um, skill to be able to allow difficult or so-called unskillful or negative states to arise, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, desire, aversion, restlessness, doubt, all these, to allow them to arise and not take them so personally and see them, the more we can see them as impersonal and impermanent and part of the flow of experience, we don't separate them out and identify with them. You know, and most of us tend to, um, we can, it's easy for us to see that joy, calm, peace, happiness is not mine, but fear, <laughs> anger, shame, that's really me. When that arises, we, t- we, ch- we tend to own that, want to own that, want to identify with that. It's just as impersonal as, a- as anything else. And, um, but it has this charge to it. So um, it's so helpful to, to begin to um, relate to these states as, um, as another expression of Dharma that's changing. It's not a mistake. It's, you know, it's universal. They arise in everyone. And um, to bring some patience to them and some kindness and some, um, uh, you know, the, and compassion and allow them to move through and allow them to change and allow them to reveal that they too are Dharma and just, just, just moving through, just changing. So there can be uh, anger. There can be um, uh, fear and these things, but there isn't a person who is that, who's who owns that, who was defined by that, um, and that's really the gift of of this practice of of the willingness to be with change. It's like we don't, you know, we don't fix ourselves. We're not limited by anything. So thank you. Uh, Okay, thank you very much.